Uh, Tonight's reading takes us through the instructions God gives for the tabernacle or tent of meeting in Exodus chapters 25 to 31. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from each man whose heart prompts him to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, and hides of sea cows, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragment incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastpiece. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Have them make a chest of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold molding around it. Cast four gold rings for it and fasten them to its four feet, with two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Then make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the chest to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of this ark. They are not to be removed. Then put in the ark the testimony which I will give you. Make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. And make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherubim on one end and the second cherubim on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with a cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking toward the cover. Place the cover on top of the ark and put in the ark the testimony which I will give you. There, above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. Make a table of acacia wood, two cubits long, a cubit wide, and a cubit and a half high. And now verse 31. Make a lampstand of pure gold and hammer it out, base and shaft. Its flower-like cups, buds and blossoms shall be, shall be of one piece with it. And now chapter 26, verse 1. Make the tabernacle with ten curtains of finely twisted linen and blue, purple and scarlet yarn with cherubim worked into them by a skilled craftsman. And now verse verse 31. Make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen with cherubim worked into it by a skilled craftsman. Hang it with gold hooks on four posts of acacia wood overlaid with gold and standing on four silver bases. Hang the curtain from the clasps and place the Ark of the Testimony behind the curtain. The curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy place. And now chapter 27, verse 1. Build an altar of acacia wood, three cubits high. It is to be square, five cubits long, and five cubits wide. And now chapter 28, verse 1. Have Aaron, your brother, brought to you from among the Israelites, along with his sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eliza and Ithamar, so they may serve you, serve me as priests. Make sacred garments for your brother Aaron to give him dignity and honor. And now verse 15. Fashion a breastpiece for making decisions, the work of a skilled craftsman. Make it like the ephod of gold and of blue, purple and scarlet yarn and of finely twisted linen. 
It is to be square, a span long and a span wide, and folded double. Then mount four rows of precious stones on it. In the first row, there shall be a ruby, a topaz, and a beryl. In the second row, a turquoise, a sapphire, and an emerald. In the third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. In the fourth row, a chrysolite, an onyx, and a jasper. Mount them in gold filigree settings. There are to be 12 stones, one for each of the, the names of the sons of Israel, each engraved like a seal with the name of one of the 12 tribes. And now chapter 29. Whenever Aaron enters the holy place, sorry, verse 29. Um, whenever Aaron enters the holy place, he will bear the names of the sons of Israel over his heart on the breastpiece of decision as a continuing memorial before the Lord. And now chapter nine, sorry, chapter 29, verse 42. For the generations to come, this burnt offering is to be made regularly at the entrance to the tent of meeting before the Lord. There I will meet you and speak to you. There also I will meet with the Israelites and the place will be consecrated by my glory. So I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of Egypt so that I, may, I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. And now verse 30. Sorry, now chapter 30, verse 1. <laughs> Make an altar of acacia wood for burning incense. And now chapter 31, verse 1. Um, then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, ability, and knowledge in all kinds of crafts, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of craftsmanship. And carrying on at verse 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, You must observe my Sabbaths. This will be a sign between me and you for the generations to come, so you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. And finally, verse 18. When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the testimony, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. This is God's word. Why did I put her through that? <laughs> well, we jumped around like that because the alternative was reading all six chapters. Good call? Yeah. Um, but why on earth are we spending our valuable time tonight looking through chapter after chapter about bizarre fixtures and fittings of an ancient tent that no longer exists and that is not the religious place for Christians anymore. Actually, it leads to an even more fundamental question, which is, uh, why does God devote 13 chapters at the end of Exodus? So these six chapters and then the final chapters, 35 to 40, why devote that much time to describing the construction of the tabernacle? the forerunner of the temple, and it had to be portable. More time than is spent describing the plagues and the rescue through the Red Sea, God acting in grace and compassion and mercy to redeem his people. Why does this get more space than that? It is not that God is a home furnishings obsessive and never misses the ideal home show. It is not that God has got some weird fixation Actually, 
When we look closely at these chapters, we'll find that like the, the finely woven curtains of the tabernacle, there are patterns woven into this text which tell us very, very important things. And not just historical things, but things that are of relevance to our lives here and now today as we try to work out what is the truth about God and what does it mean to to trust him and to follow him as we go through life. Look closely, look closely and you'll find this is actually not an episode of grand designs. This is an epic love story. It's also like a, a war movie. This is a love story that tells us the enormous lengths that someone has gone to to be with the one he loves. It's also like a war movie, the D-Day landings. This is an outpost, a bridgehead, a foothold in enemy territory as the forces of light and life finally invade the place of death and darkness. We will see here the lengths that God goes to to be with sinful people like you and me. We'll see how it is that people like you and me can have a a connection, a a relationship with God today. And we'll also see how it is that, that God starts to do his work of restoring, overturning the corruption and mess and decay of the world. And as we do so, we'll see how is it that God will meet the deepest need of our hearts. The deepest longing of our hearts for significance, to be known and loved... And our longing for a world that's not the mess that this world is in. The longing that we expressed in the prayers for for change to some of the horrific things going on around the world. Believe it or not, the tabernacle is the start to the answer to those questions. We see the great future God has planned for us and how it is that he is starting it. And we'll see something of the hope that is meant to move us as Christians. Christians are meant to be people of hope. Christians who are people who look forward You don't expect everything now, but are looking forward to something. What is that something? We'll never look forward, we'll never live with hope now, unless we know what that thing is. And strange as it might seem, after you hear the reading, actually in the tabernacle is one of the great key passages to hope in the Bible. So let's pray and then we'll look at this together. Uh, Father God, we uh, pray as we engage with this uh, old and at times confusing and uh, just alien text to us that you would give us minds to understand your word and we pray that you would stir us with hope that we might not be uh, perturbed by the difficulties of this life but that we might live confidently whatever happens today, whatever happens here because we look forward to a greater hope, a greater kingdom and a greater treasure. Amen. Okay, just two points for you and then three implications. The the points are there on your sheet. God dwells with his people and God invades our world. What is the point of the tabernacle? Actually, you've got to come back to a, a slightly more fundamental question before you answer that, which is what is the point of Exodus? What was God thinking when he interrupted Egypt's slavery and rescued this ragtag bunch of people? And took them into the desert. What was God doing that for? Well you'll see the, the purpose. If you turn, uh, turn up to the reading. Yeah, which page that would help you wouldn't it? Twenty-nine, uh, Chapter 29 verse 46. So that's page 88. Chapter 29 verse 46 on page 88. This is God speaking. 
They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. God rescued the Israelites because he wanted a relationship with them. He wanted to be their God. He wanted to dwell amongst them. And what's the first thing that then gets described as we, as we get into the tabernacle? What's the first bit? Turn back to, to page 20, uh, chapter 25, page 83. Before all the curtains, the priests, the lamps, the oils, the, the jewels on the ephod, any of that stuff, what's the first thing? The ark. The ark of the covenant. Why is that stressed first? Why is that the first thing that's built? Well, you get the answer in uh, verse 22 of chapter 25. There, above the cover, between the two cherubim, the cover on the ark, that are over the ark of the testimony, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. The ark of the covenant, this gold box which contains the the tablets of the law, the Ten Commandments, it is the place where God symbolically will dwell. This tent is, is not just some weird religious ritual. This is the throne of God, this ark, in the middle of the tent, from where he rules his people. And this is God dwelling. Okay, fine, but why build a tent for it? I mean, and why a tent like this? I mean, seriously, this is glamping gone to a whole new level. I mean, you've never seen a yurt like this, anybody. Well, think about what we've seen. Think back to what's been happening uh, throughout the account of Exodus. Ever since the Israelites arrived at Sinai, they've lived with this tension. On the one hand, God has said, I rescued you. I carried you on eagle's wings. I've brought you to myself, to the mountain, to make a covenant with you. To make a binding agreement that forever you will be my people and I, the Lord your God, will be your God. You've got this God who seems so keen to to be with his people and to know them and to have relationship with them. But on the other hand, when God does come down, the mountain splits apart with thunder and an earthquake. And when God symbolically descends on the top of the mountain as his feet basically touch down on Mount Sinai, it is consumed with fire. And he has to send out a command, don't let them anywhere near the mountain or they will be consumed and burnt up. See, the truth is that God wants relationship with us, but sinful people can't be anywhere near a holy, holy, holy God. And there is this tension going on throughout Exodus. And you find yourself wondering, well, how can the God of fire be with people like us when sin makes us like paper? (laughs) How can we ever come near that God when to be near him would be to be destroyed justly by his pure fire the answer the answer is the tabernacle the answer is this tent see the tabernacle is not about priests and altars and ephods and lamps and strange recipes for oil and incense All of those things are not what it's about. Those things are just to make relationship possible. The tabernacle is about God being with his people. All that other stuff is just to make it possible. At its heart, here is a place where the holy God, 
the perfect God, the pure judge of all the earth, can dwell in the middle of his people and then not be consumed and destroyed. That's what the point of the, the tabernacle is. You have these three areas. There's the, the area within the tent, the, the courtyard. Then you've got the holy place and then the most holy place. So God is, if you like, safely curtained off. His people are kept at a safe distance from him. But when they get up in the morning and come out of their tents, there in the middle of their camp is the tabernacle where the great uncreated God, the creator of the universe, dwells with them. He is their God and he is with them to bless them. That's what the tabernacle's for. It is to enable the holy God to live in the midst of a sinful people without them being destroyed. Look again at chapter 29, but this time start back from uh, verse 44. We looked at 46 a moment ago. Look at uh, verse 44, page 88, right at the bottom. Again, God speaking. So I will consecrate, consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. All that is laid down in these chapters, every last ordinance, every odd ritual, every strange bit of furniture is to enable this one thing, God, to dwell with his people. Look at the lengths he goes to. The ornate gold everywhere, the, the priests, the sacrifices, the rituals, the sealed off areas. This is a God who will stop at nothing to be with his people. This is a God who will go to whatever lengths are required to know you and to love you. And then 1,500 years later, along comes a man named Jesus. And right at the start of John's uh, reliable historical eyewitness account, John's gospel, in the very first chapter, in verse 14, he says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. Actually, it says more literally, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And then in the next chapter, Jesus describes himself in John 2 as the temple. He says, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days, referring to his death and resurrection. In other words, Jesus says, the tabernacle was just a working model of me, of the presence of God here on earth. Not in a tent, but remarkably, beyond our imagination, God in a human body. God revealing himself to us. God with us to bless us and be known by us. And if you think all well, the tabernacle and furniture and priests and sacrifices and anointing rituals is quite some length for God to go to so that he might dwell with us. That's nothing compared with what the true term, temple, the true tabernacle does. He comes down from heaven to earth and takes on a human form, becomes not just God, but God and man. And having come down to earth, he goes up and is nailed on a cross and having been nailed on a cross, he goes down into a grave, taking the sins of humanity so that we might be forgiven. So that there might be no need anymore for the curtains in the temple. That God and man might be able to dwell together because our sins have been forgiven 
in the death of God's own son. God wants a relationship with humans. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, how, however Im- impossible it might seem to you, this is a God who is willing to do anything to have a relationship with you. Even take on flesh and die in your place to pay for your sins. This is what Tabernacle tells us. God wants to be with us. Secondly, though, uh, God invades our world. You see, we can make a mistake. If we just stop there, I think we, we go down a dangerous route. And we'll go down a route that uh, a lot of early Christians went down. It's the route of asceticism. So um, shortly after, in the early first few hundred years of the church, there was a, a movement called the ascetics. Uh, the most famous is a guy called Simeon Stylites, who lived um, just outside Aleppo in Syria. And he wanted to escape all the physical temptations of the world. So he went and he lived on a pillar, an old stone pillar, and eventually a 50-foot pole in the desert with a one-meter-squared platform on top of it. Now, I know in central London that would be worth £200,000, but this is not central London. This is the wilderness. And he lived there. And the crazy thing is it caught on. After he died, his place on the pole was taken by Simeon Stylites, the younger. And when he died, by Simeon Stylites, the third. And then there was a Simeon Stylites, the lesser. I'm not sure why he was lesser, whether his pole was short, who knows. But it was a big thing. The idea was, look, I have physical desires, sexual desire, the desire for food, all these things. They, they corrupt us and they stop us relating properly to God. So get away from it all. Get uh, Live in the desert. Live the harshest, most brutal life. Kill off all physical desire so that you can just have pure spiritual communion with God. And they saw themselves as recreating the tabernacle. Away from human pleasure in the desert, communing with God. But they were terribly wrong. You see, the Bible tells us we were made for relationship with God. The 4th century uh, theologian Augustine, who came shortly after Simeon Stylites, uh, got it right when he said, Oh, our God, you've made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. That is, the most fundamental need of human existence is to get into a right relationship with God. But although our heart's deepest needs and deepest longings are met by knowing God and be known by him, and although we can never be satisfied, even if we have everything else in the world, unless we're right with God, and although I have to be very, very careful how I say this next phrase, God did design us for more than that. See, our heart's deepest longings are not met only by a spiritual connection with God. Living in a barren desert, enjoying relationship with God is not actually the answer to the deepest needs of the human soul. Or to put it another, and I've got to admit, mildly heretical way, uh, please don't burn me until I've explained this one. Heaven is about more than God. Now, I can see a few sharp intakes of breath going on. (laughs) Hopefully, I won't drop dead before I've had a chance to explain myself. Perhaps it would be better to say that because of the kind of God that God is, 
Because of the nature of the true God, heaven could never be a stark, barren wilderness where our souls just commune with God as disembodied spirits. Because that's not what God is like. God is spirit, but he made us physical beings with physical as well as spiritual longings. Now remember I said our deepest, greatest, most fundamental need is relationship with God, to have our sins forgiven and know God as our Father. But God did make us for more than that. God designed us to enjoy physical as well as spiritual pleasures. God designed you to enjoy the chocolate cakes after the meeting as well as the singing Jesus praises during the meeting. Those two things are not in conflict. It's part of how God made us. It's part of the extraordinary goodness, the mind-boggling nature that a God who is pure spirit, who is not created, would create matter and make us to enjoy the things of matter. So the paradise into which God put Adam and Eve was not a desert so that they wouldn't be distracted by physical pleasure from communing with God. He put them into a lush, beautiful, bountiful garden. Okay, uh, how does all that relate to tabernacle? The relevance is this. The plot line of the Bible is basically, from Genesis 3.15 onwards, humanity has brought sin and death and corruption into the world. God makes promises. I will roll back what you've done. I will restore what you have ruined. I'll bring life, an eternal life, where you have brought in death and destruction. And he makes promises to his people which expand our understanding of what that will mean and how he will do it. So principally, of course, in Genesis 12, the the great uh, central promise, if you like, of uh, relationship with God and a people and a place to enjoy. And those promises grow and grow and grow through the Bible. And here at this key moment, we see in the tabernacle, as God calls the people to himself, We see that restoration of relationship with God will mean the restoration of the physical creation. Restoration of relationship with God will mean the restoration of the physical creation. How on earth do we see that from this reading? Well, as God commands the construction of the tabernacle, and if we had time to read it all the way through, four or five times, back to back, I kid you not, you would start to hear some of the echoes and see the patterns. Because what is going on is actually huge numbers of echoes of the creation of the world in Genesis 1 to 2. Let me show you. So seven times in this account, we read God and God said. So 25, 1, 30, verse 11, 30, verse 17. 30 verse 22, 30 verse 24, 31 verse 1 and 31 verse 12. And the seventh time it introduces the Sabbath, just like in Genesis 1. Uh, We read in Exodus 31 that the Spirit enables Bezalel and Aholiab to bring beauty and order from the raw materials like gold. Genesis 1 verse 2, the spirit hovers over the raw materials of the world before bringing order and beauty to them. In the holy place in chapter 25, there is a lampstand crafted to be like a tree and whose flame must always be a light, like the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. 
And you could even go further. There is also the book of the law and the Ark of the Covenant just on the other side of the curtain, just as there is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In 25, uh, 26 verse 31, the entrance to the most holy place faces east and is shut off by a curtain covered in depictions of cherubim. Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve are thrown out of the garden, God posts at the east entrance to the garden, what? Cherubim and a flaming sword to keep them away from the garden. The tabernacle and the priestly garments in chapters 26 and 28 are covered in gold and precious stones. Genesis 2 tells us there was an abundance of gold and precious materials in the Garden of Eden. And both accounts finish with the Sabbath, which looks totally out of place in a description of the building of the tabernacle, unless it's an echo of creation. So what? So the tabernacle is not just the construction of a religious building. It is a bridgehead, a foothold. It is a small patch of earth where God is recreating the beauty of sinless Eden. That's what's going on. A place where no foul, wicked or corrupt thing can be. A place where God will be. And because God is there, everything is perfect. And a hint, a hint of what is to come at the end. And when the true temple, Jesus, comes to earth, he does the same thing. He doesn't build a temple of gold, but he brings the order and beauty of Eden with him. As he walks around, it is the most holy place, and it is the garden. Sickness, no place here. Death, get out. Turns 600 litres of water into the wine for feasting. In other words, Jesus builds a a show home, gives a movie trailer of what life will be like when God recreates the world in the early years of his ministry, the early months of his ministry. As he wanders around, it's like the most holy place of the tabernacle, a place of beauty, a place where death has no place, a place where demons are cast out, a place where sickness doesn't exist. That is what Jesus does. You see, Moses' tabernacle and the true tabernacle Jesus show that God's plan is not to whisk us away from the physical world, to be disembodied spirits. At the end of the Bible, God's people do not go to heaven. In in Revelation 21 to 22, heaven comes down to God's people and the earth is transformed by the presence of God and his city and the earth is renewed the physical earth. It is made like Eden, only better, better by far. So you see, what's the point of the tabernacle? The tabernacle tells us God dwells with his people and it shows us God's commitment, his unbelievable commitment to live with a sinful people. And the tabernacle shows us that God has invaded our world and is planning on restoring it. Three implications, three quick implications as we close. Go to Christ, go to church, understand your hope. Go to Christ. Why? Well, he is where we meet with God. He is the true tabernacle, the true temple. No one else and nothing else can do what Christ does. There is no holy place if you're a Christian. There is no holy place. This is not a holy place, this building. Jerusalem is not a holy place. 
Beautiful mountains do not bring you closer to God. Bustling cities do not bring you closer to God. There is no such thing. All of the world is God's. We draw near to God not by going to a place, as the Israelites had to, but to a person, Jesus. He is the fulfillment of the tabernacle. And so you and I do not go anywhere to go to God. We go to Jesus. That also means you don't need another human to bring you into the presence of Jesus. We don't need the priests of traditional religion and we don't need the guitar-toting worship leaders of modern Christianity to, to warm us and usher us into the presence of Jesus. We don't need to offer God anything to, to come into his presence. The offering of our praises, of our sincere feelings, the offerings of our money. We don't need to offer God anything. Jesus is the place we meet God. He brings us into the presence of God by his sacrifice, his worthiness. It is his death on the cross that opens the way for all of us. Whoever we are, wherever we are, whatever we've done. Which means that you have access to God on your own. You have access to God at home. You have access to God in the tube in your busy commute tomorrow morning. Anytime we turn to pray, anytime we turn to read God's word, we are in his presence. He is with us always. His spirit is with us. Even when we're not conscious of him, his spirit lives in us. Go to Jesus. Go to church. God is with us always if we follow Jesus. His spirit, as I say, lives in us. But the Bible also says that church, the gathering of people in whom God's spirit lives, is is in a different way the temple. Uh, Ephesians 2 says this, uh, as it talks about the church. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. There is a slightly different way in which we encounter God when we gather together around his word on a Sunday or midweek. There is a, there is a different an intensity to it. Uh, there's a corporate nature to it. God never just calls anybody in the Bible into relationship just with himself. He always calls us into relationship with others, with his family. And so you miss out on your relationship with God. You don't fully engage with God. You don't know all his blessings of relationship if you are not in church regularly. If you're not plugged into and growing in your network of, of friendships here with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And what's more, they miss out when you're not here. If you want to meet God, go to Christ, go to church. It's worth just saying at that point that when we see the lengths that God has gone to to enable us to have this access individually and corporately to him, it does ask, what is my response to that? How do I respond to a God who's worked so hard to give me access to him, to build a relationship through Jesus' death with us? How sad it is when the tent is empty right in the middle of the camp and no one's going near it. When we see it as a chore to, I really ought to pray. I know I haven't got around to it, but I really ought to. And I know I'm meant to read my Bible today. 
You have a tent in the middle of the camp where almighty God dwells and the doors are open and he says, come in any time. Come and tell me about your concerns for I'm a God who answers prayer. Come and listen to me as I speak to you words of life and wisdom and, and we view it as a chore. Spend time with God. Reflect on what a, a privilege it is to know him and have a relationship with him. Spend time on your own with God. Spend time in church with others with God. Worship him. Praise him. Pray to him. Read your Bible. Don't ignore him. Don't be casual in your relationship with him. Finally though, understand your hope. You see, Christians, as I said at the start, uh, we're people of hope. People who look forward for the greatest promises. But we'll only live now with joy and with confident hope if we are sure that what is coming will really come. We saw in Romans 8 that God will definitely do what he's promised. But we need also to be sure that what God has promised will be good. And our generation has a problem with the future focus of the Bible. We are not a delayed gratification generation. Now, we live by the mantra that you and I need to squeeze every last drop of physical pleasure out of our few fleeting years on this earth. Because this is our only chance. You only live once, we say, again and again and again. And it's spawned this, this view, this desperation has spawned the bucket list and all manner of books. There's a hundred places to visit before you die. There's now a thousand places I see on Amazon to visit before you die. There's 500 restaurants to eat in before you die. There's... Uh, 32 things to do in Liverpool before you die. <laughs> I, I love they couldn't get up to 50. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, there's, but get this. Get this. There are 1,000. This is a genuine book. I kid you not. 1,001 libraries to visit before you die. There are people out there for whom I will be able to die happy when I've seen those libraries. I mean, seriously. But this is the attitude of our generation. And sadly, as Christians, we buy into it. Maybe not the library thing, but certainly the places, the experiences. We say, I'm looking forward to the return of Jesus. My great hope is, uh, is, is the return of Jesus. But we've got this really thin, weak, wispy view of what life will be like when Jesus returns. And deep down, too many of us Christians, we desire in our hearts and we hope as if, if I don't get to fulfill the things I want now, physically, here, in this world, I will so have missed out. We say, I look forward to Jesus, but we live, we dream, we hope as if that's not true. Deep down, many of us, if we're honest, cannot imagine that anything in the new creation, when Jesus returns, could ever make up for some of the things we feel we're missing out on. We cannot imagine anything in the new creation, well, could make up for not getting married in this life. Or having long-term ill health in this life. Not being wealthy not owning a nice home or being able to visit beautiful places in this life or whatever it is for you and for me. See, we've got this wearing white nighties floating around as spirits view of eternal life or it's kind of like a church service where the sermon just goes on forever. And, and funnily enough, don't laugh quite that loud, uh, 
And funnily enough, that doesn't fire our hearts. That doesn't stir us with hope and give us confidence that it doesn't matter if I miss out on things now. And you see, these chapters about the tabernacle are part of the the Bible's answer. As God starts to give his answer of what life will be like when he changes the world radically, when he brings an end to death and the reign of sin, one of the first pictures we get is tabernacle. And one of the first things we learn is it's a physical recreation. Tabernacle makes that clear. It'll be a new physical earth, a place packed with physical beauty, physical tastes and smells and physical enjoyments. How will or what specific things in the new creation will make up for that thing you're really worried on missing out on down here? I don't know. But then I don't know how you make somebody walk on water. I don't know how you raise the dead. But God's good at doing those things. And we can trust that he will do it. There's a, uh, these days, you book your holidays on the internet, but there is still one bastion of travel agents, I notice, on High Street Ken. At the far end of High Street Ken, there's like this, this last stand of travel agents. There's like literally five of them in one small section of street. It's the only place, there'll be tourists visiting it soon. You know, five travel agents to visit before you die, before they will close. And, but it's interesting because they're all different. There's, a, there's this enormous trail finders about the size of this room with just thousands of desks with people tapping away on cheap computers and just stacks of um, flimsy paper brochures for you to pick up. And then there's a the slightly more sort of trendy, edgy virgin shop. But then a few doors down is the Kuoni shop. It has a mosaic on the floor. It has artifacts from the Far East tastefully decorated according to feng shui principles on a shelf just inside the window. It doesn't have just stacks of desks. It has booths with Apple computers and people in suits to help you find your holiday. Now, the holidays that Kuoni provides are not like the inside of their travel agents, but you get a pretty good idea of what sort of holiday they offer when you walk into that travel agent. This tabernacle that we've read about tonight is not what the new creation will be like. It won't look like a great big gold tent. But you do get an idea of what's going on in God's mind as he plans. When he says, look, I'm going to give you a hint of what life will be like in my new creation. And my hint is going to be solid gold. Let's pray. Our Father God, we, uh, we thank you for the tabernacle. We thank you that although you are holy and although you cannot compromise on your goodness and your justice, you, you found a way that we might be able to, to have you in our midst through your sacrifices and through this tent And we thank you, Father, it points to the Lord Jesus who would fully and finally deal with our sin and who would bring us perfectly and confidently into your presence. And Father, we thank you for the promise the tabernacle gives that when you when you come to dwell with us forever, fully and finally, that it's not just going to be an empty, thin existence, but it'll be a 24-carat gold world of wonders for us to enjoy. 
Father, we pray that you would fire our imaginations and stir our hearts with the hope of heaven, that we might live boldly and confidently and joyfully here. Amen.